0: So, as I said, I wanted to continue talking about the theme of concentration, samadhi. And in the context, how's the sound? Good. Good? Okay. Just work with this for a second. your samadhi perfect. fabulous perfect <laughs> good <laughs> these are great answers <laughs> so I came across this great cartoon recently you know all those TV shows I don't watch them but I hear about them so you think you can dance and so you think you can whatever I don't know, sing. well not know so there's a guy sitting on the stage in meditation, and this new quiz, this new game, sh- this sh- sh- talent show. So you think you can meditate? <laughs> there's people watching, <laughs> and he's meditating. <laughs> it's all very Zen. So you think you can meditate? So as I mentioned, I've um, been giving this series of talks uh, on the theme of the five spiritual faculties, which are qualities that the Buddha spoke of as a, as a list, as a uh, teaching, as a body of uh, practice, that when we develop these qualities, it really supports our awakening, starting with faith, trust in oneself, trust in our capacity to grow, to understand, to awaken, the cultivation of mindfulness and energy. Faith gives rise to energy, zeal or enthusiasm, which gives rise to uh, mindfulness, clarity, awareness, which gives rise to concentration in which those forces uh, culminate in the uh, development of wisdom, or knowing, understanding, liberation. So that's the context in which I'm speaking about them. So, as I mentioned in the meditation, samadhi is this unifying and gathering of the mind and the attention. It's collecting what's normally as the scattered forces of our mind. It's a depth of presence. It's a depth of attention. And it's what gives us the ability to have a continuity of attention. And it's also a quality that feels really quite delicious because it has depth in it. It has fullness. There's a pleasurable quality to it. If you think about the times that you've been naturally poised, balanced, focused, attentive, without having to will yourself. So think about something that you really love to do. Maybe it's listen to music, or you do art, or you hike, or you study, or something, some form that you do, dancing, Eating, love-making, <laughs> right, things that, are, that absorb the attention. Right? We don't have to you know, try to make an effort. It's just there. Right? We're pulled in naturally, and there's a sort of harmonizing of our whole being, one-pointedly, when it's going well, when we're in the zone, as athletes say. So that's the quality that we're, that we're learning to cultivate. So I um, have started working with uh, a company called Prana, who, uh, as many of you might know, they make uh, clothing for yoga clothing and clothing for rock climbing and outdoor adventure stuff. And I've become their mindfulness ambassador. That's my job title, <laughs> which I kind of like, actually. <laughs> Every company and every nation state needs an ambassador and a mindfulness ambassador. So <laughs> may this be the birth of many. So I'm working with them, teaching them about mindfulness and um, how to integrate that into their, their work culture, which is going really well. And they're also having me meet with some of their, they sponsor many athletes, particularly uh, well-known rock climbers. So this week I met with Chris Sharma who is really at the peak of uh, rock climbing, mountain climbing. Um, For many years, he's been really the the leading uh, rock climber in uh, carving out new routes on impossible mountains and rock faces and cliffs and overhangs and boulders. And so we had this dialogue about the relationship between mindfulness and meditation and rock climbing. And it was really great having a conversation with him and uh, knowing I was going to have this talk on concentration because if anybody knows about concentration, it's people who rock climb. Anybody rock climb here? Yeah. So you cannot afford to lose attention when you're up 500 feet, 1,000 feet up a cliff face or even 20 feet up a cliff. So there are many things in our lives where we do bring this this uh, quality, this attention. When we're riding a bike, I, I like to road bike. And you can't take your eye off the road for a moment. Otherwise, you're in the ditch, you get run over by a car, you're on, on somebody else's wheel. So it's a great practice. But you can't be so tight if you're doing a four-hour ride. You, know, you can't maintain that willed attention. It has to be relaxed. Just like when you're driving, there's a certain kind of Samadhi that happens, a driving samadhi that happens. And you can't be. Well you can if you like, but it's really <laughs> unpleasant. You know, if you're driving to LA like that, you know, you arrive like a wreck. So you, you know, you're relaxed, you're present, you're listening, you're open. Yeah. So many places we can cultivate this quality, and we need this quality particularly. Uh, to focus, to concentrate. But also it allows it brings a certain kind of steadiness. As we develop a steadiness of concentration, attention in the mind, it translates to our lives. Maybe you notice this. Maybe you notice if you sit in the morning and you develop a certain quality of samadhi, of this gathering collectedness of the mind, that affects your day. Anybody notice that? yeah that it it lays the foundations like a platform. we have a little more resiliency and fluidity and spaciousness and capacity to absorb difficulty. So I wanted to read uh, something that was written up in Time magazine some while ago um, about someone who does this practice. He sits forty minutes in the morning. At 4.30, when most of Wall Street is winding down, Walter Zimmerman begins a high-stakes, high-wire act conducted live before a paying audience. About 200 institutional investors, including airlines and oil companies, shell out $3,000 a month to catch his daily webcast on the volatile energy markets, a performance that that can move hundreds of millions of dollars a year, a day. I'm not paid to be wrong, I can tell you that, Zimmerman says. But as he clicks through dozens of screens and graphics on three computers, he's the picture of focus calm. Zimmerman, 54, watched most of his peers in energy futures burn out long ago. He attributes his brain's enduring sharpness not to an intravenous espresso drip, but to 40 minutes of meditation each morning and evening. The practice, he says, says, helps him maintain the clarity he needs for quick, insightful analysis even approaching happy hour. Meditation, he says, is my secret weapon. And so it goes on to talk about the various researches, <coughs> uh, research that's been done on meditators and the effect it's having uh, in our work life and in our lives, as we know. So uh, as you read the texts, you'll notice that the Buddha talks about developing concentration a lot. At least it's repeated a lot in the text. And so, uh, clearly it was very central for his practice and for his teaching. And so it behooves us to understand the place of that is in uh, meditation, and in uh, in spiritual life. So, primarily... In the practice of Vipassana, which is an insight practice, where we're developing insight, clarity, understanding, knowing, we can't do that unless we have a depth of presence, a depth of attention. Try to, see, try to do anything or see anything with any clarity without a depth of presence, and the mind's just what? It's just jumping and jumbling and running and scattering and it's all over the place, right? Normally, we, it's, it's hard for us to sustain an in attention in our everyday life unless we've learned how to really gather that. So we can't know ourselves deeply or can't know the nature of things deeply if we're not attuned, if we're not, we have a depth where the mind can be gathered and collected. So I think this teaching is particularly relevant today. You know, I think about the uh, life at the time of the Buddha, which was a sort of a feudal agrarian economy, and people lived close to nature, worked on the land, and uh, went on Facebook, and uh, weren't twittering every five minutes about the weather and the crops and the latest, you know, feudal rivalry between the kings. You know, they were just mostly living a very simple existi- existence, <coughs> much less distractions. So fast forward 2,600 years, I think the Buddha would have a lot more to say about the the need for this gathering and collecting of the mind, because particularly since computers and the Internet and social media were developing what one uh, uh, researcher on trends in the tech industry she calls it, we're developing constant impartial attention. Constant impartial attention, which is really the opposite of samadhi, which is a gathered, collected attention. Constant impartial, where, constant impartial attention where we're learning to split our attention, to multitask, and to never give anything of the fullness of our presence. So, and you can just see the ripples and the implications of that, both in the quality of our life, the quality of our attention, the quality of our relationships, the quality of our communication, let alone how we drive or anything else that we might do that's scary with that impartial attention. So, a friend and colleague of mine, Dinah Winston, is working down in UCLA heading up Mindfulness Uh, department research there and they've done some really great studies with teens on the effects of mindfulness and ADD and and the results have been astounding that that even doing an an eight-week mindfulness training that the the data has been quite significant of how mindfulness meditation bringing the attention back to a single point again and again and again has profound effect on attention deficit disorder, which is not surprising. We practice attention dispersal. I remember I had a young man come visit me recently, uh, 17, and uh, he's really into tech stuff, like a lot of people his age and totally into Facebook and Twitter and instant messaging and burning and sharing everything online all the time. And um, it was, I felt I had ADD just watching him move (laughs) between the different computers in the house and it was a whirlwind of of attention. And uh, it was kind of an eye-opener. And I know that's that's also true with people who work uh, full time, sit in front of a computer, which a lot of a lot of us do now. And and there's also an impetus or pressure to not just to not just unitask, but to multitask, to be both doing email and phone and being at meetings and checking your BlackBerry and or wh- wherever you are checking your Blackberry or your iPhone. Yeah, so there's this pressure to stay connected which keeps us continually scattered in a certain way. A friend of mine went to a Prince concert recently uh, and during one of the songs, before one of the songs he said, okay, for this, just this one song, everybody put down your phones, no recording, no tweeting, just listen. You know? I think it's very challenging for a lot of artists who are performing now and the, the, the audience is, not, is no, no longer present because they're trying to record it or tell people about it <laughs> rather than actually have that experience. So the other thing that's pretty commonplace is, uh, as Achan Buddha Dasis famously said about Westerns who are coming to study with him, he said, "I can sum them up in three words: lost in thought. You know, we're lost in thought. We're lost in our heads. We're lost in our minds. We're lost in thinking. We're lost in planning. We're lost in worrying and catastrophizing and making up all kinds of imaginary dramas that never actually happen. And so again, that, that fritters away a depth of attention, the depth of presence." I think I may have mentioned this research that uh, I came across, I think it was in the Times, it was uh, conducted by Harvard, uh, where they uh, tracked, I think, 20,000 people, uh, and they did a survey on how much they were daydreaming during the day. And the results were kind of staggering, or maybe not, maybe not so surprising, that we daydream a lot, we surprised by that, <laughs> but they were the uh, the data was we the the average per, the average amount of time people daydream is forty six point nine percent of the day, wow. which means we're in that constant impartial attention mode where we're doing something like driving or showering or bathing or cooking or cleaning or walking or you know a lot of things where, where we're not required to give our full attention, and so what we do is we space out. We think we daydream, which would be okay. You know, it's not a bad thing to do. It can be fun to daydream and fantasize and plan. And, but the data pr- uh, s- revealed that, uh, without fail, th- when they tra- when people track themselves in a j- daydream or at the end of a daydream, their level of happiness always went down. That the daydreaming actually made them less happy. Even if they were fantasizing about something more fun, like sitting at work daydreaming about you know, going home, or whatever, you know. So watch out, if you're, da- if you're daydreaming now about going home, just know that the talk might be actually more enjoyable than the daydream because, because, what it, what, why, why do you think that is? Because you're not in the present. Because you're not in the moment. You're not meeting the moment. You don't give the moment a chance. Mm -hmm. And then when you come back to the moment from sitting in the hammock in Hawaii, (laughs) of course sitting in your cubicle (laughs) just doesn't quite, you know, come up to scratch, right? So we're in this constant comparing mind. So the result is uh, a lack of depth of attention with ourselves, with each other, with our activities. I would like to read this um, piece from Henry Miller, who, the uh, novelist, who uh, took a painting later in his life, and he said, and "Again, he's talking." And I like this because he's speaking as the artist. Uh, who naturally cultivate this depth of samadhi through, through their medium. I remember well the transformation which took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I had gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder, and with wonder of course affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup, whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I had never seen it before. To paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. So you can see that, you can feel when he's reading that, the depth of presence. So even the teacup, the chipped teacup, has some quality to it. I notice this, I've been writing a lot of poetry the last couple of years. And the thing I like most about writing poetry is the depth of presence that comes writing poetry or the depth of presence that comes in that space of receptivity that allows the poem, the muse, to to come. Which is very similar to a meditative presence. When you do a lot of meditation practice, you're on meditation retreat, there's a certain depth that, that sustains itself. As those of you who know who've done retreat practice, and if you haven't, this is a really good reason for doing, many good reasons for going on retreat. One of them to discover what it's like to actually live day to day with a much deeper depth of presence depth of concentration and then everything starts to become a little more luminous a little juicy a little more alive. the colors enliven uh, nature becomes more radiant people become more beautiful So one of the ways the Buddha talked about uh, concentration is through um, the development of absorption uh, into, into, into a really deep quality of uh, concentration called the jhanas. And when the Buddha uh, first became a renunciate and went seeking, looking for teachers, the main practices that, he, that were being taught, meditation practices that were being taught at that time were concentration practices. And so he studied with two of the most famous teachers of the day um, and quickly excelled in their methodology, their techniques of meditation, which took meditators through successive deep states of meditation. There's eight stages of what's called jhana or absorption. And the Buddha quickly went through uh, all eight stages. Um, very beautiful, profound, delicious uh, states of meditation. I'm going to read something uh, where he's, this is after his awakening, and the Buddha is d- describing somebody going through these states. He says, um, So, meditators, what is this noble concentration? There is the case where a meditator, quite withdrawn from the senses, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, enters and re- remains in the first jhana where rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal from the senses, accompanied by this sustained and connected attention. He permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this b- very body with the rapture and pleasure born from concentration. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. So, um, does it sound good? We we'll to sign up? <laughs> There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from concentration. So the first stage of uh, this depth of absorption is characterized by pleasure, by happiness. And what's interesting to read in the text where sometimes uh, the the association with the Buddha and, the, and, and that tradition is, is that... Um, it's a renunciate tradition, and therefore it's life-denying. But actually, in the meditation realm, there's a complete embracing of the pleasure and the joy and the rapture and the happiness and the bliss and the ecstasy that arises through meditation. And maybe some of you tasted moments of that or had some periods of that in meditation. And it's completely accessible to anybody who wants to do the practice and, and apply yourself. It does usually require certain require certain conditions, like going on a retreat where you can actually really get away from the busyness and the emails and the you know, running around. It does require a certain settling and supportive conditions. But those, quali- those, those succeeding, uh, successive um, depths of meditation, first characterized by pleasure, happiness, the second by rapture, the happiness, if the pleasure wasn't good enough, it moves into rapture, and a very ecstatic form of rapture. Uh, and then it moves into a very peaceful calm and the third stage. And the fourth is a very profound equanimity. It's completely chill, completely <laughs> cooled out in the, in the deepest sense of chill, uh, very beautiful state of being. Uh, and then they move into more expansive uh, states. So, um, anyhow, so the Buddha studied all those, found the value in those, and then he, he left those teachers saying, well, this is great. I get really concentrated. I, I access all these deep, beautiful, absorbed places of meditation, and I come back out and I'm kind of mostly the same as I was. So it's great. It's like a good, you know, it's, it's a good bliss, uh, immersion, but it hasn't really transformed my suffering. And that's really what I'm interested in. So he left and he went on to explore other teachings and practices and eventually, uh, through his own awakening, discovered the, 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 the essential uh, ingredient of insight that is what leads to liberation. And so rather than throwing out the, the, medit- the concentration practices, he found that it was those concentration practices that really refined his mind to make it, made it malleable, Pliant, focused, and it's through that depth that he was able to really see clearly uh, the nature of things. So, and that's that's often what you read in the text is he encourages meditators to go through these stages of meditation to come back out and use that depth of attention to inquire into your experience, into the nature of the self, into the nature of reality, into what's happening in this moment. And there's stories, there's many stories throughout the tradition of people who've excelled in these beautiful qualities. Um, And then some contemporary teachers, uh, Achen Jumnian. How many people have experienced Achen Jumnian? Wonderful Thai forest master who comes here uh, periodically, um, who has, has some people have a natural inclination to this really deep states of meditation. He was one of those people when he was, Four, they found him off in the forest meditating and been meditating all day and sitting happily under a tree, you know. and There's all these great stories. Um, and, and mostly did a lot of uh, concentration practice through the loving-kindness practice. The so loving-kindness practice is a form of concentration. And for years and years and years, developed these qualities to a very fine degree and uh, uh, a very luminous, light, playful uh, being, and his two English words that he mostly uses is empty, empty, happy, happy. <laughs> and that's how he moves through life, empty, empty, happy. I mean, he's just completely at ease, present, radiantly happy. I mean, really, it's just you know, bliss is dripping off the guy. <laughs> and um, he says he barely sleeps. He mostly, he has so much energy from meditation that he's, you know, he's a really profoundly awake person through through doing these practices. And another beautiful example of, of this is Deepa Ma, um, who was one of Jack's teachers, um, who was an uh, Indian woman who um, lived in Burma for many years and had a very tragic life. Her, her first son died, um, and then her husband died. And she had a lot of loss and grief, and she was so distraught with the grief that she could barely function and crawled her way into a monastery and learned some basic meditation practices and quickly excelled, had a natural propensity for this deep uh, capacity for absorption, for concentration, and became one of the most uh, proficient and adept meditators uh, that we know and developed profound qualities, psychic powers, um but also just had this radiance of heart and there's some lovely stories there's a beautiful book i was just reading called Deepama, which is about her and the stories where she would just transform she moved back into uh uh uh, an apartment in calcutta really run down uh, uh district rough district where there was also always a lot of contention and strife amongst the tenants. And she moved in, and someone said, after about six months, the whole vibe of the place calmed down. And people began to treat each other with respect and kindness. And she just had this influence. And she, someone asked, I think it was Jackie Rasta, um, always a good thing to do when you're around somebody who's quite awake, what's it like being you? Like, what's, <laughs> what, what, what's going on in that mind And she sat for a moment. She said, there's three things that are happening in this mind. Peace, concentration, and love. That's the three qualities that abide in my mind stream. Pretty good, huh? Peace, concentration, (laughs) and love. And she had a very radiant heart. Um, And also... um, took this depth of presence into everything that she did. And that's why I think she so touched people was that she was just a very ordinary Indian woman who had this profound quality of presence. And so everything that she did was like a blessing. It was like a prayer, whether she was bowing or doing the dishes. This is from a teacher from Boston. He said, I never saw Deepa Ma have a restless or distracted moment. And I used to watch her all the time. When she would stand, it was like a rock dropping. She would just stand. And when she sat, she sat, period. There was never anything else going on. She didn't look around or even lose her focus. So many, many stories of... uh This is a story that Jack tells about her. She encouraged me to live what I was teaching. The quality of her presence was like that in the Hasidic tales where somebody asked, why did you go to see this rabbi? Did you go to hear him give a great lecture on the Torah or see how he worked with the students? And the person said, no, I went to see how he tied his shoes. (laughs) Deepa Ma didn't want people to come and live in India forever or be monks or join an ashram. She said, live your life. Do the dishes, do the laundry, take your kids to kindergarten. Raise your children or your grandchildren. Take care of the community in which you live. Make all of that your path, and follow your path with heart. I think that's where he got a book title from. <laughs> Plagiarism knows no bounds. <laughs> Don't tell him that. So um, the uh, the 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 concentration practices, the absorption practices, they come with a um, the surgeon's warning, you know, the health warning you get on the pack of cigarettes. Um, the the warning is that uh, to the inexperienced meditator, guess what happens when you start diving into all these blissful, rapturous states? You get attached get attached or why wouldn't you get attached they're delicious (laughs) but they can really hinder the meditation progress if that's where you get stuck because just like the buddha found you can go in and out of these states of light and bliss and you come out and nothing really been transformed it does have some effect on the mind stream Uh, there's a story about a man who uh, in the days of old uh, the king uh, somewhere in northern india has a competition to see who's who's the the greatest meditator, and who can meditate the longest. And so these these yogis go into caves, and uh, the prize is, that, is they win the, one of the king's beautiful stallions. And so, I'm not sure what a yogi would do with a stallion, but anyhow, that was the prize. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the yogis go into the cave, and um, they meditate for, you know, a day goes by, a week goes by, and. and all these people start, you know, dropping out of the meditation. But one man keeps going and has incredible aptitude for meditation. A month goes by, two months goes by, three months goes by. Until a certain point, so much time goes by that people forget about him. He's just the monk who meditates in the caves and the competitions from me forgotten about. And the king has his horse. And, <laughs> and then one day, years later, the man snaps out of meditation. It happens sometimes. People go into meditation for years. And, um, the first thing he says when he comes out of the cave is, where's my horse? (laughs) So, sometimes not a lot of transformation. (laughs) So, so another, another twist to the, this, uh, this teaching on samadhi or concentration is what's known as wise concentration and unwise concentration. So wise concentration is when we're developing this quality in support of our meditation, in support of insight, in support of our awakening, in support of developing kindness and compassion. Unwise concentration is when we're using... We're using the power of our mind to focus for, uh, s- for selfish means or means that cause the suffering of ourself or others. So a great example is a thief or a burglar, house burglar, or a bank robber, you know, someone plotting very detailed burglary. Right? If you think about a... Uh, I'm thinking of all these old... Peter Seller's movies, or this cat burglars going in, stealing the diamond from the museum, requires an incredible amount of concentration. But it's unwise in the sense that it doesn't lead to any fruits in the mainstream. It leads to more greed and contraction ultimately. The same with the, the concentration of a pickpocket, very concentrated, very focused, one pointed, but leads to the harm of another. And so it leads to uh, actually lessening of wholesome qualities in the mind stream. So there's two basic kinds of samadhi or concentration. Uh, one is um, uh, what's called a samadhi, which is a moment-to-moment samadhi, which is kind of what we're learning, what we do practice in mindfulness meditation, where we're simply present to whatever's predominant in each moment be the breath, could be a sound, could be a sensation, could be a feeling, could be a thought, could be a sound, could be a sensation, breath, feeling, image. That's a moment, to a moment. we're just simply present to what's here right now, and now, and now, and now, and now. And the other kind of concentration is where we, um, is more how we associate concentration is where it's one-pointed. We come back to a single point, whether it's the breath, or a color, or a sound, a mantra, a visualization, So I'm just speaking. I know it's a little late to be going into this, but I'm just going to say it anyway because hopefully some of you will be awake. Um, (laughs) Which is just a little about how to work with this in your meditation. So in as as you as you if you think about the meditation, you're like you're like in this stream, like this red carpet here, and to 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 become more one pointed requires uh, five factors to come together. Okay. I'm going to test you on this next time. Five factors. Okay. It requires um <laughs> <a> four. <laughs> I was looking at the word I was using. It requires a, um, uh, the f- a, a kind of a pleasurable uh, contentment or well-being. So And that's why I stressed at the beginning of the meditation to find, to, to, to sense into a sense of ease or well-being, contentment, gladness. Uh, calm. Some basis of calm or steadiness. One-pointedness, where we're just very single-minded on one thing. Not constant and partial attention, but just one thing. Just the inbox of our email. Just... And the last two uh, what's called connecting and sustaining attention. So connecting is, uh, okay, here's a, good, here's a good example. So I'm gonna ring the bell. So connecting attention is you, I strike the bell, your attention immediately connects with the sound. The sustaining part is you sustain the attention for the duration of the sound. Going, one pointed, staying relaxed, calm. So see if you can sense those qualities in in your own being. It's connecting, sustaining, at ease, well-being, contentment in your body, calm, stillness of the night. One pointed, staying one pointed with the sound. So, if you're interested in developing this as a practice, and, and you, you may just notice in your meditation, well, are, the, are these five qualities present? Happiness, calm, one pointed, connecting, sustaining. This is how Gary Lawson describes it in daily life. <coughs> Because you know we can bring, we bring these qualities to anything that you do. If you if I'm riding my bike, I'm connecting and sustaining my tension with the road, with the traffic. Yeah, there's there's a certain relaxation, there's one pointedness, and there's joy because I'm on my bike and not at my desk. So uh, this is um, there's a guy walking up and down his garden, and. Uh, um, so one of the things you can use to develop a concentration practice is the noting practice. Right? So sometimes we teach the noting practice in this tradition, where you just simply name everything that's arising. So in, out, hearing, touching, in, out, breathing, sensing, feeling, thinking, in, out, touching, tingling, listening. right Just that's the noting practice, a moment-to-moment noting practice. So Gary Lawson. It's called Basic Lives. So the guy's walking up and down going left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And the bird's going up, down, up, down. The dog's going bark, 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 bark. Don't bark, don't bark. <laughs> the frog's going hop, rest, hop, rest, rest, hop, rest. You have to see it. To, you know, you get a job. <laughs> from there. This is a little in translation. Anyhow, uh, there's another cartoon next to it where um, <clears throat> the the... The, they're on a Viking slave ship, and the schedule for uh, the practice of uh, uh, concentration, of sustaining and connecting, and one-pointed point of attention, is the day. The day's activities: Tuesday, five till six, rowing. Six, and they were down the down the hull, all were chained and rowing. Six till seven, rowing. Seven till eight, rowing. Two <laughs> thirty to three thirty, rowing, and on it goes. So some of you may have the good fortune of having work that really allows you to develop a relaxed, balanced attention. So I have a private practice. I work with people one-on-one. That's one of the places that's really a lovely place for me to develop this quality. I'm just with one person in the room for an hour, and there's just a balanced, present attention. So think about the times in the day when you can develop this quality. Maybe you you work one-on-one with some people sometime, or you're just with your child, or you're mowing the lawn, or you know, there's activities that can take a long time. You're walking the dog. Yeah? Where can you develop this balanced attention? Similar to mindfulness, but more attention on the continuity and the one-pointedness. <coughs> so it's useful to pay attention, as always, to what gets in the way for you of developing this quality. What interferes with you being calm, collected, gathered, unified, concentrated? Aside from your BlackBerry and your email and your talking on your cell phone while you drive and uh you're doing three things at once all the time and what are the things that, 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 that scatter you right, that cause this sense of non focus? Whether it's, it might be busyness, might be too busy, rushing, over-planning, over-scheduling, right? lack of time. That's a sure way to lose depth of presence is to be late for a meeting and you're driving and you're hitting traffic at 8 a.m. and Monday morning going into San Francisco. Right? I've learned to give myself a lot more time going to the airport or going to a meeting because I know if I don't, There's agitation, there's anxiety, and the depth of presence is lust. Noticing how much our attention just goes to our thoughts and to practice being more in our body. The body is a much more reliable vehicle for connecting with this depth of presence. A lovely practice, which is a very subtle practice, is uh, what they teach in the forest tradition that uh, Jensomedo teaches a lot, of paying attention to the nāda sound. So right now, as I as I will cease talking for a moment, see if you can listen to the sound of the silence, which is a sound, it's a subtle sound of almost a slight ringing in the ear. Which is beneath the the frogs croaking. It's a, it's a sound lower than that. You have to get really quiet to t- tune in. Can people sense that? Yeah. So this is a great practice to tune into because you have to be really attuned to stay present to that. So Achin Samadha practiced it when he was in the forest in northern Thailand and then he moved to England, was living in north London, uh, upstairs from a pub and, um, and he gave himself the practice of, of trying to do that he, he, first he thought it's impossible, I'll never be able to do this in London, it's chaotic, it's loud, it's busy there's drunken English people everywhere and then he said no I'm going I'm I'm to learn how to do this in the midst of the chaotic busyness of life and, and over two years he learned how to do that it just requires a, a tuning, a subtlety dropping in So I love this phrase, that uh, I'm going to close with this, that Thich Nhat Hanh has, um, where he says, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. Mm. Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. So Buddhism is very behavioral in some ways. It's very practical, methodical, And so we pay attention to what supports our well-being, what supports the gathering and unification of our mind, what scatters it, and then to see the results of that when we're scattered, we feel, you know, at the end of a day when we've been scattered all day, we feel blah. If we've had a day where we've been really calm, balanced, focused, there's a lot more delight at the end of a day So to look at the things that support this quality of presence developing, and certainly through meditation practice, is the primary way uh, to deepen this. Uh, Unless you have, and there are other supportive practices, whether you're qigong or tai chi or yoga or you're a musician or you're an artist, and those forms obviously clearly deepen this quality of presence where you work with people where you're bringing a lot of presence to it. And just to reflect on what supports you and what takes away from this quality. And we can go and retreat to develop this, but we can really bring it into the nitty gritty of our lives. And it's really good, it's a good barometer for seeing is my life out of balance, in balance, by how gathered and collected my attention is. Okay. Well, that's all I have to say this evening. So, um, thank you for your attention. And uh, nice to be with you all, as always. I'm not quite sure when I'm next back. I know Jack, oh, so next week, Jack is here with uh, a teacher from England, John Peacock, who is a really brilliant, has a brilliant mind. Um, I highly recommend you